listening to the best wrestling podcast in the world. Journey into Wrestling every other Wednesday on the Journey into Comics Network. The following, the following. Journey into Comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. the Journey into Comics Network feed for this late-breaking edition of 4 News, featuring Andrew Bull. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 2 of Poor News. Yes, Poor News, the topic that covers all things political, government, international news, U.S. news, all of that fun stuff and everything, everyone's favorite, President Donald J. Trump. And I use president loosely or sarcastically or with quotes because a lot of you don't find Donald Trump to be your favorite president, and there's definitely a lot of reasons why. More on that later. But jumping in involving what was recently the worst hour of Donald Trump's presidency that had just happened. This is from Tuesday, August 21st. Um, Two classic clouds have been hanging over Donald Trump's presidency for months broke open almost simultaneously on Tuesday afternoon and poured rain all over the president. Between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. Eastern Time, two narratives both disastrously bad for Trump emerged. Number one, Paul Manafort, the man who spent five critical months leading Trump's campaign in 2016, was found guilty of eight financial crimes on the ten other charges brought up against Manafort. The jury couldn't reach a unanimous conclusion. The president's presiding judge declared a mistrial on those counts. And number two, longtime Trump personal attorney and fixer Michael Cohen agreed to a plea deal with the Southern District of New York in which he admitted guilt on eight charges and acknowledged that he had discussed or made hush payments to two women alleging affairs with Trump in order to keep damaging information from becoming public at the direction of and in coordination with a candidate for federal office. That candidate, although Cohen didn't name him, is obviously Donald Trump. Either of these developments could make for a disaster week for the President of the United States, who was watched Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian 2016 election interference draw ever closer to him as it has gone along. But for both Manafort to be found guilty and Cohen to not only plead guilty, but to implicate Trump in a payoff that violates campaign finance law is literally catastrophic for the Trump White House. While both stories are very big deals, the Cohen plea is more important in terms of its direct impact on Trump. Remember that Cohen acknowledged discussing or making payments to both porn star Stormy Daniels and ex-Playboy model Karen McDougal during the course of 2016 campaign, as a way to ensure their silence about alleged affairs they conducted years earlier with Trump. Cohen at first insisted that Daniels' payment was made out of his own pocket without any direct or indirect knowledge by Trump. Of, of the payoff, Cohen said back in February, in a private transaction in 2016, I used my own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to Miss Stephanie Clifford, Neither the Trump organization or the Trump campaign was a party to the transaction with Miss Clifford, and neither reimbursed me for the payment, either directly or indirectly. In a New York City court on Tuesday, Cohen admitted that wasn't true. He had sought to keep the payments as well as their source out of the public eye in coordination and at the direction of a candidate for federal office. And those 12 words are very, very, very big problem for Donald Trump. Here's why. On April 12th, Trump was asked about the Stormy Daniels payment by reporters. Here's the exchange. Reporter, do you know about the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels? Trump, no. Reporter, then why did Michael Cohen make the payment if there was no truth to her allegations? Trump, you'll have to ask Michael Cohen. Michael's my attorney, and you'll have to ask Michael. Reporter, do you know where he got the money to make the payment? Trump, no, I don't know. We've already learned, thanks to Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, that Trump paid Cohen back the 130000 that was funneled through a shell company known as Essential Consultants LLC to Daniels, but even the admission still gave Trump some level of plausible deniability. Sure, he was regularly paying Cohen and a retainer to fix problems, but Trump never knew that about any of the details of the payment or what they were for. 
except that it's no longer accurate. According to what Cohen said as part of the plea deal, if Cohen was contemplating the payment to Daniels McDougal at the direction of and in coordination with Trump, it is possible the president's statement made aboard Air Force One back in April to be accurate, literally impossible. What that means is if Cohen's plea is to be taken at face value, which the Southern District of New York quite clearly does, is that Trump may not only have sought to end run his campaign finance laws in coordination with Cohen in hopes of keeping allegations about his romantic life private, but also lied about it. That is a massive deal. Massive. Now on to Manafort. There's a tendency among some of the immediate aftermath of the ruling to point out two bits of alleged good news for Manafort Trump. One, 10 of the 18 charges have been declared a mistrial, and B, the charges all dealt with long time before Manafort came into Trump's orbit. What that overlooks is that A, even if the 10 other charges aren't retried, Manafort is going to spend years in jail, and B, Manafort was Trump's lead campaign operative for an absolutely critical time of Trump's ascent to the presidency. No matter what Trump says now about how little Manafort did in the campaign or how short a period of time he spent on the campaign, the fact of Manafort's essential role with the campaign is indisputable, and at the very least, Trump's decision to hire Manafort badly undermines the president's oft-repeated promise on the campaign trail that he would only hire the best people in his White House. Trump's former campaign manager has now been found guilty on eight felony charges of financial wrongdoing. You can't just wave that off, or we should have just waved that off. I wrote recently that the next two weeks would be an absolutely critical moment for Trump's presidency, for the broad Republican Party, and for the country. Now, in the space of a single hour, two massive dominoes have fallen, and they both landed on Trump. While the Manafort news is more of a glancing blow, the Cohen plea deal is, without question, the biggest problem for Trump personally that has emerged publicly to date. We're talking about the President of the United States being implicated in the purposeful and coordinated attempt to break campaign finance laws, and to do so in service of keeping allegations about his private life out of the public eye during a campaign for the highest office in the land, and obviously won just 11 days after Cohen paid off Daniels. It's a stuff of nightmares for Trump and his inner circle, sure, but it also poses huge risks for a Republican Party that was largely tolerated Trump's radical presidency in hopes of securing things like long-term conservative dominance on the Supreme Court or a tax cut law, which can or will the congressional leaders within the party say, particularly given the 2018 midterm elections now less than 100 days away. This is a day and an hour the Trump operation in the broader Republican Party is dreaded and likely had come to believe might never arrive, but here we are. We don't know the hour or the day the Mueller report will be released, but that might be the only hour that could eclipse the disastrous 60 minutes Trump endured on Tuesday. So let's see what comes of this. I know people are saying after this came out that impeachment was definitely on the horizon, but impeaching Donald Trump is not the way to defeat Trumpism. Even after Cohen and Manafort, any move to oust Trump is likely to fail and won't tackle the white nativism he champions. Donald Trump's in. Iniquities need no rehearsing here. The U.S. would be better off without him as president. His departure would be good news for the rest of the world. Even more importantly, his removal might be pivotal in a larger endeavor. The building of the confidence in the world's democracies, nevertheless, it would be a mistake to impeach him. This is an opinion piece from Martin Kettle for The Guardian. This has been a devastating week for Trump. His personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, think Tom Hagen to Trump's Vito Corleone, has pleaded guilty to two campaign spending law violations that directly implicate Trump in authorizing hush money payments. Meanwhile, the president's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, has been convicted on eight bank and tax fraud charges rising out of the investigation led by the special counsel, Robert Mueller. Each is an enormous blow. The Cohen plea in particular is further evidence, if it were needed, of Trump's manifest unfitness for office. Presumably, there is talk of presidential impeachment in the air. It's easy to understand why. The desire to rid the state of a disgraceful and perhaps criminal leader is understandable and righteous, but impeachment is just about the most inappropriate and double-edged weapon for achieving this goal. 
let's remember what impeachment actually involves. The House of Representatives must prepare and vote by a simple majority for charges which are the basis for the trial in front of a 100-member U.S. Senate. A two-thirds vote in the Senate is required to convict and remove the president from office. If 34 senators vote not to impeach, the president stays. In the current Congress, Republicans have a 37-vote majority in a 40-35-seat House and a two-vote majority in a 100-seat Senate. Both bodies have become strikingly partisan in the past 30 years. Control the House may change the midterm election on November 6th. That might allow impeachment to start, but Republican Senate numbers will not fall below the 34 necessary to block impeachment. Impeachment is a political process. It is a trial by politicians. Party loyalties and re-election prospects matter as much as the facts or the charges. The only circumstances in which impeachment can rise above the inevitable taint of partisanship are if the facts and charges are incontestable, threatening the republic, and if representatives from the president's own party are prepared to vote against him for the perceived good of the nation. These conditions were satisfied in Richard Nixon's case in 1974. Nixon Republican faced draft impeachment proceedings in the House over the White House's Watergate cover-up. Early in August 1974, Republican support ebbed away from the release of tapes showing that Nixon had blocked the Watergate investigations and had lied about it. The fact now showed the president had acted criminally. As a result, House and Senate Republicans were not prepared to defend him. Nixon resigned and impeachment never took place. But the same conditions were not satisfied in Bill Clinton's case in 1998, which I witnessed at first hand in Washington. Here, everything was partisan from start to finish. Republicans had long craved the opportunity to bring Clinton down, while Democrats stood by throughout. The criminal charges of perjury and obstruction of justice were far less weighty than those in Watergate, and the process was both polarized and polarizing. Public opinion rallied behind Clinton, and the charges were thrown out. Clinton left office two years later with some of the highest approval ratings of any president. Impeaching Trump would risk being more like the Clinton case than the Nixon one. In order for an effort attempt to impeach Trump to even get off the ground, the midterm elections are crucial. Many Democrats will be mobilized by the possibility of impeachment, but so will many Republicans. Polling suggests that Republican voters are more set in their opposition to impeaching Trump than the Democrats are in support of impeaching him. It is possible that impeachment would be counterproductive on the doorstep for Democrats, which is why Democratic congressional leaders are not pushing it. Even if Democrats do win the House in November, impeachment would be intensely divisive. It might even help the rally the country behind the president. True, Trump does not possess Clinton's ability to attract supporters across the spectrum, but nor yet is Trump accused of committing the level of offense as president that Nixon committed. The charges against Nixon related directly to a way he conducted his presidency. Those against Trump apply to the period before he entered the White House. Which is a very good point, I would add. In other words, there is no way at this stage that an impeachment move against Trump would succeed because there will be always be 34 senators who will vote for him to stay. Nor would it help to unify Americans around an alternative. Trump would still be the president. He would still be president of a more deeply polarized nation than ever. This would not be Watergate reborn. Democrats may calculate that all this risk worth taking impeachment or even the possibility of impeachment might tie the administration up, limiting its option to take destructive new policy initiatives. They may hope, too, that an impeachment effort would mobilize the Democrats' base and divide Republicans, a mere image version of what happened in 2000 when George W. Bush won an election that was otherwise right for the Democrats. But this assumes wrongly that what works on the right of politics also works on the left. A failed impeachment is more likely to embolden the president and strengthen Trump's chances of winning a re-election in 2020. Americans certainly be much better than it is today. The reruns last week of Barack Obama's tears while listening to Aretha Franklin was a heart-touching encapsulation of the morally dignity that Americans has thrown away in just two years of Trump. But there are very few shortcuts in politics. For progressive opposition parties in Europe as in the U.S., successful democratic politics is still about winning to the right to be heard, about finding leaders who can speak persuasively for credible change, and about winning an electoral argument based on hope, reason, inclusivity, and civility. 
That is what Obama managed to do and is still the only sustainable way. In the aftermath of the financial crisis and new extremes of inequality and with the rebirth of militant white nativism, I ought to be clear that what needs defeating is not Trump, but Trumpism. And uh, Martin Kettle is a Guardian columnist. And kind of moving away from a little bit of Trump news involves a more message from the Pope. If you remember from episode one of Poor News, I talked about uh, the letter that Pope Francis put out condemning uh, the actions that happened in Pennsylvania. Parents of gay children shouldn't condemn them, Pope Francis says. Pope Francis says parents of gay children shouldn't condemn them, ignore their orientation, or throw them out of the house. Rather, he said they should pray, talk, and try to understand. Speaking to reporters after closing out a Catholic family rally in Ireland, Francis said, There have always been gay people and people with homosexual tendencies. Francis was asked what he would tell a father of a child who just came out as gay. Francis said he would first suggest prayer. Don't condemn. Dialogue. Understand. Give the child space so he or she can express themselves. Fran said it might be necessary to seek psychiatric help if a child begins to exhibit worrisome traits, but that is something else if an adult comes out as gay. He urged Fran's not to respond with silence, ignoring the child with this tendency shows a lack of motherhood and fatherhood. He said this child has the right to a family and the family not throwing him out. So that's definitely good news. One thing I've always said about this Pope is that he's definitely more not radical but he's definitely gone away with a lot of the preconceived notions about the catholic church he's done away with some things that were previously condemned and hope this makes change for the battle for the catholic religion as a whole so yeah but moving on that for uh some weather news and that involves hurricane lane which created a steamy whiteout in hawaii hawaii's been having a kind of a rough year with the uh the volcano that erupted and all that sort of that. So this week, Hurricane Lane later downgraded it to a tropical storm lane, collided with another natural disaster on the Big Island of Hawaii when the storm dropped over two feet of rain on the island, including Kalu's volcano lower east rift zone. The result was a rare steam whiteout, according to the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. While the eruption of lava from fissure in the rift zone has calmed in recent weeks, it has laid down hundreds of millions of cubic meters of lava over the course of about three months. Much of the material is still hot enough to boil water. Earthquakes at the summit of cloud ha- that happening regularly for several weeks have sighted in August and lava was slowly oozing into the ocean in just a few spots as Lane arrived. Unfounded rumors that a deluge of rain from the storm could have completely extinguished the state's highly active volcano did not come to pass. In fact, the clouds of steam from rain interacting with still hot lava rocks were the only significant effect Lane had on the eruption aside from a few minor rock falls at the summit. Meanwhile, the rains left Hawaii under a flash flood watch and turned normally small streams into powerful torrents. The United States Coast Guard will be flying over the lower east rift zone for a closer look on Monday. Definitely would be interesting to see when two big natural events kind of collide. And kind of moving along here back to some more political news, and that's former Attorney General fears feud between Trump and Session makes President look weak. Former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez said Sunday that he fears the ongoing feud between President Trump and his Attorney General Jeff Sessions make the President look weak. I fear that because the president is head of the executive branch can remove the attorney general anytime that he wants, but the continuous criticism without talking any action makes the president look a little weak, Gonzalez said on Fox News Sunday. Gonzalez's comments came days after Trump lambasted session interview with Fox and Friends host Ainsley Earhart that aired last Thursday morning. In that interview, Trump called Sessions an attorney general that never took control of the Justice Department. This is a very serious allegation that the Just- Department of Justice is out of control, saying Gonzalez, who served as Attorney General under former President George W. Bush. 
Jeff Sessions has been mainly quiet until now in the face of a lot of criticism from the White House. Sessions is a rare rebuke on the president last Thursday afternoon, issuing one of his toughest criticisms of the president since joining his cabinet. While I am Attorney General, the actions of the Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. I demand the highest standards, and where they are not met, I take action. Sessions said in a direct response to Trump's interview, however, no nation has a more talented, more dedicated group of law enforcement investigators and prosecutors in the United States. Gonzalez said on Sunday that he thought it was appropriate for Sessions to respond to Trump's remarks. It's important for the Attorney General to reassure the American people in speaking to the American president that he is in control of the Department of Justice and that it is operating the way it should be operating. As for the United States, Trump has the right to be critical to say what he wants to say about his cabinet officials, he continued. As General Mayor, I think it's more effectively to do it privately than publicly because it undermines the department, the Attorney General, and also hurts the morale of the Justice Department. Trump has repeatedly lashed out on Sessions of the Justice Department over Special Counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe, which he has dubbed a political witch hunt. Molly Tibbetts' killing fuels Republican immigration attacks ahead of midterms. President Donald Trump has repeatedly used the killing of 20-year-old college student Molly Tibbetts as fuel for a new round of political attacks less than three months out of the midterm elections. Republicans are increasingly following suit, both in Iowa, where authorities on Tuesday charged with Tibbetts' murder, a man they say is an undocumented immigrant, and in other states where immigration policy could affect both primary and general election contests. What happened to Molly was a disgrace, and our hearts go out, Trump said while speaking to Republicans in Ohio on Friday. After mentioning two other examples of crimes committed by an undocumented immigrant, he added Democratic, Democrat immigration policies are destroying innocent lives and spilling very innocent blood. We believe that any party that puts criminal aliens before American citizens should be out of office, not into office. Trump also posted a video on Twitter this week in which he used Tibbetts' death to attack Democrats over immigration policy. Molly Tibbetts, an incredible young woman, is now permanently separated from her family, he said. A person came in from Mexico illegally and killed her. We need the wall. We need our immigration laws changed. We need our border laws changed. We need Republicans to do it because the Democrats aren't going to do it. Over the past few days, even as some members of Tilt Assembly requested her death not be politicized, some Republicans have followed Trump's lead and used her death as a campaign season cudgel. Particularly in Iowa, where the homicide occurred, the issue has been used to attack Democrats. On Wednesday night, Iowa political blogger Laura uh, Bellin received and recorded a call from a, a firm called RTB Research that included a question about Cindy Axney, the Democrat challenging Republican Rep. David Young in the state's 3rd Congressional District. Asked if certain statements would make her more or less likely to support Axney, the caller said, Recently, a University of Iowa student named Molly Tibbetts was murdered by an immigrant in the country illegally. But Cindy Axney wants to join extreme liberals to abolish ICE, and, or ICE. I see, whatever. An immigration agency responsible for enforcing our borders and tracking down criminals who are in the U.S. illegally. In briefing the CNN, Axney called efforts to politicize her death unconscionable to me and said that while she believes the U.S. immigration system is broken and in need of legislative repair, abolishing ICE is absolutely not the solution. I called on Congress Young to shut this down, she said in the poll, and whether it was him or one of his allies, I think, out of respect for Molly's grieving family, that needs to make sure that it's taken out of the field as soon as possible. Our committee has nothing to do with this poll, and we have no knowledge of who may be behind it, spokesman Cole Stott told CNN early Friday. Young, he added, was on the record saying he did not want to politicize, politicize this tragic event. Iowa Republicans from Governor Kim Reynolds, who was also on the ballot this fall, to Senators Chuck Grassley and Johnny Ernst, have made a clear connection between Tibbetts' death and U.S. immigration policy. 
As Iowans, we're heartbroken and we are angry, Reynolds tweeted on Tuesday. Soon after Rivera's arrest, we are angry that a broken immigration system allowed a predator like this to live in our community, and we will do all we can to bring justice to Molly's killer. In a joint statement, Grassley and Ernst echoed Reynolds' remarks and said, Too many Iowans have been lost at the hands of criminals who broke our immigration laws. We cannot allow these tragedies to continue. Ernst stumbled down in a Thursday tweet linking an interview she had done with Breitbart, a far-right website that regularly backs Trump, in which the host called the killing an execution and called out Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren for pivoting during an interview on CNN's New Day from Tibbetts' death to criticize to criticism of the Trump administration's zero-tolerance border policy and resulting family separation crisis. The families who are separated the border will come together again, Ernst wrote. Molly will never be with her family again. Fred Hubble, the Democrat running for un- to unseat Reynolds this fall, criticized state Republicans over their response on Thursday. It is really unfortunate that politicians have all of a sudden are using this to politicize the event. Let the family have time to grieve and deal with their loss, take some time and give them some space. Tibbetts said has also become a talking point for some Republicans outside the state and not just the purpose of attacking Democrats. Kelly Ward, a GOP Senate candidate in Arizona, used the killing to target Republic fellow Republicans over their border policy positions. The lack of leadership encouraged by open border senators like Jeff Flake, Senator John McCain, and amnesty advocate Martha McSally contributed to these senseless deaths, she tweeted on Thursday. We need true leadership in the Senate to build the wall and secure our borders. McSally is the front runner next week primary. So, and like it said, like, that some of her family rejects the idea of this being politicized. Um... They don't want her death politicized at all. Some relatives at Molly Tibbet are pushing back against politicians who are blaming the country's immigration system for the Iowa college student's death. A body believed to be Tibbetts was found in Iowa on Tuesday, a month after she went missing during an evening jog. The man arrested in her death is an undocumented immigrant from Mexico. President Donald Trump and other Republican politicians have highlighted the case to argue for stricter enforcement of the immigration law. But some of Tibbetts' family members, including her aunt Billy Jo Calderwood, said they don't want her death to be used for political leverage. I don't want Molly's memory to get lost amongst politics, Calderwood told CNN, emphasizing that she's speaking out for herself. But she said her family received an outpouring of love from people of all races, religion, and ethnicities during their search for her niece. It's not about race, it's about people joining together to do good, said Calderwood, who posted a similar message on Facebook. Tibbetts' immediate family released a statement Tuesday focused on their grief and gratitude. Our hearts are broken. On behalf of Molly's entire family, we thank all of those from around the world who have sent their thoughts and prayers for our girl. We know that many of you will join us as we continue to carry Molly in our hearts forever. At this time, our family asks that we will be allowed time to process our devastating loss and share our grief in private. Again, thank you for that pouring of love and support that has been shared in Molly's name. We remain forever grateful. At a vigil for Tibbetts in Iowa City on Wednesday, Molly's brother Jake asked those in the crowd to remember the good over the bad and to appreciate how people across state and country joined together in the aftermath of her disappearance. Remember, this is a time that the country came together for one girl. One girl that loved everyone. One girl that loved everything and wanted the best for everyone. Don't remember this is a time that someone made her a very poor decision and took a girl away. We're going to miss her dearly, but to be honest, what made her so special is she was just like anyone standing there. She loved to run. She loved Harry Potter. She loved the hawk. She loved her family. She was goofy. She was clumsy. Jake Tibbetts said. One of the Tibbetts' second cousins, Samantha Lucas, told the scene she wants Tibbetts' death removed from political discussions. Lucas said she didn't know her second cousin well and isn't speaking for the whole family, but she said she knew enough about Tibbetts to believe she would not want to this be used as fuel against undocumented immigrants. Selena contacted Lucas after she pushed back against people on social media who mentioned Tibbetts as they railed against uh, illegal immigration. At the vigil for Tibbetts Wednesday, a friend of the 20-year-old said she didn't want the tragedy to become politicized. 
I also know what Molly stood for, and she would not approve, the friend Brett Goodman said. So I don't want her death to be used as propaganda. I don't want her death to be used for more prejudice and more discrimination. I don't think she would want that either. And moving to the last bit of kind of democratic news, and that involves DNC changes superdelegates' rules and presidential nomination process. So Democrats on Saturday voted to chip away at the role party insiders play in choosing the party's presidential nominee in one of the biggest changes to the process in decades. The move to limit the influence of superdelegates as the party's convention ahead of the 2020 presidential primaries and an emotional and tumultuous two-year effort born out of the divisive 2016 contest between Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who went on to become the, pres- the Democratic nominee. In a surprisingly united vote, almost all members of the Democratic National Convention curtailed the ability of the superdelegates to vote on the first ballot for the party's presidential nominee, beginning with the next election. The group of about 700 automatic unpledged party leaders, elected officials, and activists previously were able to back whatever candidate for the nomination they choose. The move ended a vehemently contested debate that had pitted a majority of DNC members supporting the change against two former party chairs, members of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and others who opposed the new rules. Both sides came together to pass the overall process ahead of the next presidential campaign. Saturday's vote officially barred the superdelegates from voting on the first ballot to choose the party's nominee, unless candidate has secured a majority of the convention using only pledged delegates whose votes are earned during the primary process. Beginning with the 2020 nomination process, candidates will no longer be able to count superdelegates if they want to win the party's nomination on the first ballot of voting at the convention. This makes it impossible for superdelegates to change the outcome of the pledged delegates' will, which has never occurred since superdelegates were created ahead of the 1984 campaign. Today is a historic day for our party, said DNC Chair Tom Perez. We passed major reforms that will not only put our presidential nominee in the strongest position possible, but also help elect Democrats up and down the ballot across the country. These reforms help grow our party, unite Democrats, and restore voters' trust by making our 2020 nominating process the most inclusive and transparent in our history. The change stemmed from a tumultuous 2016 primary campaign in which Sanders supporters accused the superdelegates of having too much influence over the outcome. The overwhelming majority of them supported uh, Clinton. The vivid ride with the party over the changes came to an unexpected close when former DNC chairwoman Don Fowler, who was adamantly against the changes and led the opposition, moved to vote by acclamation instead of ballot vote. You always want unity. I'm still much opposed to most of what's in that document, but more people that, than I wanted it. You've got the election to take care of in two and a half months, and the election in all of 2016 cycle, 2020 cycle starts. That's just a whole different ballgame. The Battle for Superdelegates. Perez and DNC officials were pleasantly surprised by the change from Fallon and other members who were against the reform. But members of the DNC Black Caucus were split on the reforms with those opposed in agreement with Fowler that the move was a form of voter disenfranchisement. The right to vote is sacred, said former DNC chair Donna Brazel, who was against the changes ahead of the vote, is an insult to democracy. Other Black Caucus members like Michael Blake, who worked for President Obama in the White House on African-American outreach and engagement, refuted those charges. This is not disenfranchisement at all. The person that has their vote taken away is has been purged with the person we need to be fighting for. Voters want us to be listening to them, and this is the way to show we are listening, to show that we are understanding the changes that have been made after 2016. And after I kind of went um, a little bit, it looks like even without the superdelegates, uh, Clinton sort of won the uh, party's nomination in 2016. I, I saw some math. I don't have the numbers in front of me. That was just did some research I did earlier. But it'd be interesting to see, because I know when I was really following the 2016 election, I thought the superdelegates was a little unusual and something that the Republican Party didn't do, so I thought it made sense to have that be something that was talked about. 
With that, I kind of want to end on some sad news, and that involves the passing of Senator John McCain. Uh, he died due to complications of uh, of cancer. Um, and in his uh, in the article here, Obama Bush asked to speak at John McCain's funeral, and Trump told to stay away. The late Senator will lie in state at the Arizona Capitol and in Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. McCain, who died Saturday at the age of has been asked the former president to speak at his funeral in Washington. It's National Cathedral on Saturday, according to CBS News. Vice President Mike Pence is expected to attend. President Donald Trump will not be invited to McCain's funeral at the request of the late senator. The White House was told of McCain's wishes by members before his death. Both Obama and Bush defeated McCain in races for the presidency. Bush bested him in the 2000 Republican primary, and Obama won the presidency in 2008 against McCain. But both then deeply admired the Arizona senator. Obama said McCain had the courage to put the greater good above his own. Bush called McCain a man of deep conviction and a patriot of the highest order. Some lives, he said, are so vivid it is difficult to imagine them ended. Some voices are so bright and it's hard to think of them stilled. McCain will lie and say at the Arizona State Capitol on Wednesday, his birthday. Vice President Biden is expected to speak the following day at a service in the North Phoenix Baptist Church before McCain's body is transported to Washington to lie in a state at the Capitol Rotunda on Friday. Bush, Obama, McCain's family, and others are... Later to speak at the full dress service on Saturday in the National Cathedral. A private ceremony will be held on Sunday at the U.S. Naval Academy Chapel in Annapolis, Maryland, and McCain will be buried at the U.S. Naval Academy Cemetery next to Naval Academy classmates and longtime friend Admiral Chuck Larson. I want, when I leave, to have several people that stand up and say, This guy, he served his country, McCain told Leslie Stahl last year on 60 Minutes. And that takes us to uh, Donald Trump's statements on John McCain. So President Trump reportedly rejected sending out a statement praising Senator John McCain, opting instead to write a short tweet. According to the Washington Post, Trump nixed the statement despite calls for his senior aides, including Press Secretary Sarah Sanders and Chief of Staff John Kelly. The statement drafted before the senator's death Saturday would have commended the Arizona Republican for his military service and his decades in the Senate. It also would have called him a hero. The final draft of the statement was ready for the president's approval per the Post. But Trump reportedly told his aides that he preferred to send out a tweet in that missive. He was brief, and his words focused on the McCain family and didn't offer praise for the senator's legacy. My deepest sympathies and respect go out to the family of Senator John McCain. Our hearts and prayers are with you, the president wrote late Saturday. White House aides went out to post official statements from others in the administration, including Vice President Mike Pence and others in the cabinet. The tweet capped off a strained relationship between the two Republicans. Before his death, McCain decided Trump should not be invited to his funeral, where former President Barack Obama and George W. Bush are expected to speak. So, definitely my heart goes out to his family, and hope good things um, come from his death and his legacy, and some people pick up the mantle he left. And I think that'll actually do it for this week's poor news uh definitely a lot of news to talk about and there'll definitely be more to come back from as i go to the heart of it all when i go to washington dc this coming weekend or this past weekend depending on when you're listening to this episode so definitely i'll have definitely news to talk about there we'll see if trump is around off so i'm not gonna be able to talk to him or anything like that but maybe i'll see the motorcade or i'm definitely gonna be checking out some of the monuments museums around there because it's been a little bit since i've been to dc so definitely stay tuned for that that'll probably be a White House or uh, Washington DC edition of Poor News when I return. So with that, that does it for Poor News for this week. Definitely check us out on the social media on Facebook at Poor News as well as Instagram at Poor News. And you can check out all the other shows on our network by going to journeytocomics.com. We also have a Patreon, which you can go to patreon.com slash journeytocomics to get all of that news. 
and everything going on there. But that does it for this week. I am Andrew. Have a great week.